this war will not end easily or rapidly. For the past few months, the West has been united. The President is traveling to Europe to ensure we stay united, to cement our collective resolve, to send a powerful message that we are prepared and committed to this for as long as it takes. Can we get that message to uh, a whole bunch of American businesses who are still doing business with Russia? I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, in Palinville, New York, on WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans, on WHIV, I got hit again with yet another disaster down there. Uh, hope you're okay, New Orleans. Uh, out in Gallup, New Mexico, on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle, on KODX. Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. And Minneapolis-St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day. On the Internet, it's on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and some of your favorite podcast sites, Blanketing Planet Earth. Five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Welcome back to the award-wanting Bradcast. Glad <laughs> to have you with us. Uh, I know uh, I know. You know, when most people uh, think about places like the Yale University School of Business Management, Desi Doyen, yes. uh, if anyone does think of such places at all, you, you probably sort of assume the folks there are right-wing, stodgy, conservatives, you know, don't ever do anything to hurt big business or yeah. speak ill of our great American corporations. Mm-hmm. Sort of folks like that. Well, I suspect when my guest joins me momentarily today, uh, some folks will find out that ain't the case. <laughs> at least when it comes to the senior associate dean at the Yale School of Management, Jeffrey Sonnenfeld, who, along with his team of experts and research fellows and students, have been behind uh, the list of American and international companies who are being justifiably named and shamed right now for continuing to do business in Russia. Uh, Professor Sonnenfeld will join me shortly to discuss that to discuss that list and those companies, you know, like our good friends at the far right Coke Industries and the oil services giant Halliburton. Oh, yes. Who are not only continuing their business in Russia, but in many cases they are continuing to expand their operations despite 
Russian President Vladimir Putin's barbaric assault on his neighboring country in Ukraine. What? Profits over people from the oil industry? No. So you will want to stick around for that conversation, I expect, as we do name and shame a few of those companies and perhaps give some credit to others where it is due for pulling out of Russia at no small cost, as more than 400 such companies have done so far, even if many others have not. And yes, we're going to talk about them and let you know where you can find Sonnenfeld's full list of the good, the bad, and the ugly corporations, uh, just in case, you know, you want to stop doing business with them yourself. What? You mean enact your own sanctions personally? When it comes to, uh, you know, putting their bottom line above the lives of Ukrainians and, frankly, the survival of civic democracy across the globe. That's all. But anyway, uh, first, a bit of news. And, uh, yeah, also, actually, speaking of oil companies... Araby, Louisiana is just north uh, I'm sorry, just east of New Orleans' lower ninth ward. It was wrecked by Hurricane Katrina back in 2005. It was hit hard yet again when Hurricane Ida swept through last year. Stacy Mancuso's family, according to AP this morning, just completed repairs to their home in Araby. After Ida had ripped off the roof and caused extensive water damage last year, but on Tuesday night, a tornado tore through her street. She huddled in the laundry room. Unfortunately, most houses in New Orleans do not have basements. Uh, She huddled with her husband, two kids, uh, and their dogs as part of their brand new roof blew away. We're alive, said Mancuso. That's what I can say at this point. We still have four walls and part of a roof. I consider myself lucky, she added. Tuesday's twister was the third time that they have had major weather damage since Katrina. For some reason, it was not only Louisiana this time. Desi Doyen on yesterday's Green News report, I think it was, I, I had mentioned how Texas's Governor Greg Abbott has had to issue one climate-related disaster declaration after another in recent years. Hurricanes, floods, freezing temperatures last year knocked out power for days, as you'll recall. Oh, yes. So that came up yesterday because we were talking on the uh, on the Green News report about wildfires that are sweeping across the Lone Star State now due to prolonged drought and another early heat wave across the state, which you said uh, Governor Abbott, well, doesn't seem to uh, has not put the uh, connected the dots. And he's not going to to the fossil fuel industry. Um, Yeah. And then, boom, guess what? Overnight in Texas. A tornado swarm blows through your old home state. So I know tornadoes are not unheard of in Texas and Louisiana, but they seem to be getting more frequent, more damaging. They're coming earlier in the year, it seems, farther south than they used to, at least it seems. This one blowing through New Orleans, creating a swath of damage two miles long. What do we know about the latest disasters to strike Texas and Louisiana? What do we know about the effect of 
man-made climate change on on this kind of extreme weather. All right. So first of all, in Texas and Oklahoma, one person was killed and more than a dozen injured in those two states from tornadoes. Some rain actually helped to douse some of the fires that Texas is fighting. Well, there you go. Yeah. um, As far as New Orleans, uh, the officials say that at least two people have been killed by the storms. As we go to air, Louisiana's Democratic Governor John Bell Edwards has uh, declared a state of emergency. The National Weather Service said that these were multi-vortex tornadoes, which is multiple tornadoes from one storm. And at least one of them they rate preliminarily as an EF3. And that's really powerful. That's like the wind speed equivalent of a Category 4 hurricane. Wow. Um, and uh, this is the, that would make it the strongest tornado to strike the New Orleans area since 2017. So it's not unheard of. For yeah, is it my imagination that we're getting more of these, uh, that they're more causing more damage, they're farther south, farther well, east? Well, so, so, so here's what we know. So the, the data is mixed on how climate change is influencing tornadoes, and uh, it's partly because of a lack of data. It's also because it's really hard for climate models to uh, look at something and use data from something as small as a tornado, mm. which, you know, is a, is a very small, localized mm-hmm. and very short term yeah. weather event. So that's really hard to add. But the study, but we do have studies that are showing that tornadoes are getting more frequent. They are getting more intense and they are now more likely to arrive in swarms. Um, studies also link man-made global warming to the increase in nighttime tornadoes oh, in yeah. the southeast. That's because temperatures are getting warmer overnight and that provides more heat energy to keep these storms fueled. And of course, nighttime tornadoes are more deadly because people can't see them at night or they're asleep and they won't hear the sirens. Yeah. And I got to tell you, coming from, uh, you know, born and bred in Missouri, where we had plenty of uh, tornadoes, boy, when they came at night, scary as hell. Oh, yeah. And uh, so also studies show that the statistical center of what's been known as Tornado Alley is not really in the Great Plains anymore. It has moved further east and further southeast. And data also suggests that that is because of global warming, because the dry line, what's called the dry line between the wetter eastern U.S. and the drier western U.S., that's where the dry west cold air collides with the humid air in the Gulf, and Mm -hmm. that creates those storms. And so that's why it's pushing these tornadoes further east and more at night. So it is not my imagination. Things are changing. Uh, They are. Thanks, uh, Governor Greg Abbott and the fossil fuel companies that fund him. You're doing great. Doing great by your own people. How many more are you going to kill before you uh, take some action here? All right. uh, The other thing we're monitoring today, day three of Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson's Confirmation hearings in the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee to become the first black female justice to sit on the U.S. Supreme Court. Yesterday the was the first day of Q&A for Jackson. Uh, it turned, frankly, into a circus, as I saw it, of, you know, GOP 2022 talking points, many of which, you know, just happened to be racially based. Like, you know, Jackson's opinions on teaching critical race theory in schools. Which and whether, does not come up in her job at all. Whether babies are born racist or not, you know, stuff like that. 
So rather than privileging the lie, as we noted yesterday, and, and, and covering any of that nonsense here, uh, unless there was anything more of note during today's second round of uh, questioning, Des, you've been monitoring, I, I have a separate Supreme Court story that I'm actually more interested in today. So w- was there anything we're missing that we need to cover? <laughs> There's nothing that you're missing from okay. them that needs to be covered. I mean, Tuesday was basically the Republican smear a Supreme Court nominee as soft on crime and trial pornographers day. <laughs> and Wednesday is pretty much uh, so far has been a, a GOP hobby horse day with really lengthy diet tribes about stripping women of their reproductive rights and about court packing. And of course, Ted Cruz is still very weirdly obsessed with child pornography. And uh, they appear to be laundering these claims into the corporate media, which is, you know, they get a couple of uh, sound bites for Fox News. They might get an appearance on Fox News. And of course, the corporate media is helpfully, dutifully amplifying their claims, saying, gosh, well, she's having to push back against being easy on child pornography. Well, instead of actually fact-based. And I would just like to uh, state that uh, Desi's insinuation about Ted Cruz and child pornography is not the opinions of the broadcast (laughs) or the uh, station you are now listening to. Anyway, uh, okay, thank you. Uh, Update completed as far as I'm concerned, because here's a story I'm actually more interested in for the moment. Where the hell is Clarence Thomas? The Supreme Court on Wednesday declined to say whether the 73-year-old justice remains in the hospital or not. He had been expected to be released by Tuesday evening. On Sunday, the court said that Thomas had been admitted to the hospital in Washington, D.C. on Friday after experiencing, quote, flu-like symptoms, and he was diagnosed with an infection. Though in uh, that case, the court had said nothing about uh, this court's second oldest justice being hospitalized for two full days. Didn't come until Sunday. They claimed at the time on Sunday, Thomas had been given antibiotics for the unspecified infection and that his, quote, symptoms are abating. They said he was expected to be released Monday or Tuesday. But as of Wednesday morning, according to AP, the uh, court spokesperson said that she had no update to provide. Uh, Is he home? Is he still in the hospital? She couldn't even provide that. Apparently, the American people don't need to know. I, I don't know. Maybe she doesn't know. The court heard arguments uh, again on Wednesday morning. Chief Justice John Roberts said, uh, as he has now for the past two days, while Thomas has not been present, that uh, he would participate in the case by reviewing the uh, argument transcripts and briefs and so forth. Roberts said Thomas was, quote, unable to be present today. And he gave no explanation. Hmm. So um, the court has said Thomas did not have COVID-19 and his infection was being treated with those intravenous uh, antibiotics. Uh, That's what they said on Sunday, but we have heard nothing since then. And he's either not out of the hospital for some reason or he is and they're not telling us either way. So, you know, at 73 years old, the far right and very, very corrupt Clarence Thomas, which is the opinion of the broadcast. He will be the oldest member of the court once uh, Justice Breyer steps down, retires at the end of this session in July. Uh, Thomas has been on the court since his controversial hearings amid allegations of sexual misconduct back in uh, 1991, when he was secretly backed at the time, by the way, by millions of dollars of advertising and, and, and PR by a little known group at the time named Citizens United. 
And yes, some years later, after Thomas voted in favor of Citizens United uh, in a landmark case that unleashed hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars in dark money into our political and electoral system, his similarly corrupt far-right activist wife, Ginny, she received millions of dollars to her various so-called nonprofit organizations, even while she was, by the way, being paid big bucks by right-wing activist groups for years that Clarence somehow forgot to report on his annual financial disclosure forms. Anyway, just keeping our eyes on all of that, I'm sure he's fine. At least I hope so. Anyway, uh, one of those companies that has uh, helped funnel millions of dollars to Ginny Thomas, his company you may have heard of by the name of Coke Industries. Oh, yes, I've heard of them. We may talk about them a little bit today. As I want to leave, uh, take a quick break here because I want to leave plenty of time for my guest. It's not only Clarence Thomas who deserves some naming and shaming today. So let's go ahead and break here. We will move back to the Russia-Ukraine conflict and... The businesses, American companies that are still doing business in Russia, despite the now nearly month-long slaughter of civilians, residents in its sovereign neighboring nation of Ukraine. All of that and more still to come on today's broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hi, this is Brad. My thanks to those who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to sign up for a subscription to the Bradcast of any amount you like. We rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Please grab a subscription at bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you. From Russia with love I've More like from Russia with hate, bombs, missiles, cruelty, evil. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Since uh, Russia's horrific invasion of Ukraine, we've been highlighting various initiatives that uh, are being taken by folks here in the U.S. to sort of help out in the war effort in various ways, above and beyond donating to humanitarian charities and so forth. We have highlighted the group of former Voice of America veterans raising money to send shortwave radio transmission broadcasts of actual news programming into Ukraine and Russia, shortwaves for freedom, as they call it. Uh, which was helpful and, and, and popular in Soviet states during the Cold War and now likely very helpful once again in the wake of Russia's crackdown on independent media, especially since VOA ended their own shortwave broadcasting into the region several decades ago after the fall of the Soviet Union. We have spoken with longtime climate author and activist Bill McKibben about an initiative described as heat pumps for peace and freedom to encourage President Biden to invoke the Defense Production Act here in the U.S. in order to direct American manufacturers to quickly churn out electric heat pump systems that can replace some 75 million oil and gas furnaces in Europe that currently rely on gas imported from Russia, while also helping to take on our climate crisis at the same time. So double good there. We ourselves have called on uh, folks who can work from home 
uh, as so many did during the pandemic lockdowns, to do so again, if possible, in hopes of decreasing oil and gas usage for commutes here in the U.S. to help ease pricing on the global markets, to lower our spiking dangerous emissions of greenhouse gases, and not coincidentally, um, help prevent the Russian war machine, which is funded in no small part by fossil fuel exports, from being able to profit off of the global spike in energy prices. On Wednesday, President Biden headed to Europe in hopes of, among other things, encouraging Western allies to increase sanctions against Russia, including against hundreds of members of the Russia State Duma, that's its lower house of parliament, and additional measures to uh, to reduce the continent's reliance on Russian energy. Americans are also increasingly viewing the crisis in Europe as one that will require economic sacrifice, with a new poll out today from AP finding that a huge majority of Americans are in fact willing to accept damage to the American economy if it helps to stop Russian President Vladimir Putin's invasion. And on that score... There is something else that Americans can do to make a difference in the war effort in Eastern Europe. According to Yale University's School of Management, stop doing business with companies who are still doing business with Russia. Yale's Jeffrey Sonnenfeld, who has been tracking those companies and letting the world know exactly who they are, joins us next on the broadcast, and he's got a lot to say about those companies. You will not want to miss this. I promise that straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Desi. The broadcast and the Green News Report survive thanks to you and your support. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today to help us stay independent every day over your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Well, come on and let me know. Should I stay or should I go? <laughs> well, now... Should I stay or should I uh -huh. go now? That's an interesting question right about now, isn't it? For a lot of huge corporations doing business in Russia right now, even after part, uh, Putin's assault on a sovereign neighboring nation, though, uh, frankly, I, I think my guest joining me momentarily might think uh, it shouldn't be such a difficult question. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. As L.A. Times Pulitzer Prize winning business columnist Michael Hiltzik uh, wrote last week at the L.A. Times, hundreds of Western businesses and corporations have garnered praise for withdrawing from Russia, even if that entails a hit to their sales and profits. Now let's look at the other side of the coin, he writes, companies that have resolved to keep operating in Russia. The Hall of Shame, as Yale business professor Jeffrey Sonnenfeld and his colleague Stephen uh, Tian or, or, or Tian have labeled the roster of corporate responses to Russia's invasion of Ukraine that they are maintaining 
uh, including 24 companies that are, quote, digging in, defying demands for exit or reduction of activities. The list also includes some 80 companies that are merely scaling back some, but not all, of their activities or they're deferring new investments. Among the consumer companies identified as digging in are the fast food chain Subway, Reebok, electronics company LG and Asus, and Natura, the owner of Avon Cosmetics. Some of those firms and others that have scaled back operations have asserted that they are remaining in place to avoid harming their innocent Russian employees. But McDonald's, one of the American companies that shut down all 850 of its stores in Russia, is actually taking care of their employees for now, continuing to pay them, even while closing doors to all of their restaurants there. Some companies like Subway and Papa John's say that their business models involve licensing or franchise agreements, which preclude them from promptly or fully shutting down. Some Western firms haven't been very specific at all about the future of their Russian operations. The giant food company uh, Mandela's or Mandele, uh, which produces Oreo cookies and owns Cadbury chocolate. They've said that they are scaling back all non-essential activities in Russia while helping maintain continuity of the food supply during the challenging times ahead. Because who can live without Oreo cookies and Cadbury chocolates, apparently? Then there are companies, huge conglomerates of many companies, in fact, like the right-wing Coke Industries, which claims that they are continuing their operations in Russia for the, quote, health, safety, and well-being of all employees. Or huge fossil fuel services companies like Halliburton, Baker Hughes, or Schlumberger, all Houston-based companies, by the way, who Yale's continuously updated list of companies describes as digging in even after Russia's horrific invasion and what the U.S. now declares as war crimes by Russia, by its president, and as of today, its armed forces who are attacking Ukraine. We should note, as Hiltzik does, that more than 400 companies have taken firm steps to withdraw from the Russian market. Among them are 150 that made clean breaks, suggesting they may not ever return. These include law, consulting and accounting firms that haven't customarily kept capital assets in Russia and therefore could leave very easily. But they also include BP and ExxonMobil, which cut ties with Russian petroleum partners and may find it difficult to restore those severed relationships. Good. An additional 178 companies, he notes, have suspended operations for now. They include financial companies like American Express, MasterCard, Visa, Deutsche Bank, automakers Ford, GM, Nissan, Mazda, Toyota and Hyundai and entertainment companies like Walt Disney, Warner Media, and YouTube. As Sonnenfeld and uh, Tian observed in Fortune magazine recently, uh, continuing to operate in Russia is looking ever more indefensible. The leadership and constituencies of at least 400 global companies should feel great pride in their Russian exits, they wrote. Then... There are those other 24. Joining us now to discuss those other 24, as well as the hundreds who are doing the right thing, and how this list of companies has become a focal point for public outrage and boycotts and even use by governments, 
is Jeffrey Sonnenfeld, Senior Associate Dean at, uh, and the Lester Crown Professor of Management Practice at the Yale School of Management. He's also the author of multiple books and scholarly papers on business management, leadership, and corporate governance. Professor Sonnenfeld, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Thank you, Brad. It's great to join you. Uh, we have uh, you know, some updates. It's a moving target. Yeah, so if anybody punches in, mm-hmm. even while you were on companies doing a wonderful introduction, several companies changed. So for good or for bad, we're actually up to 37 now in that digging in uh, category. If you're giving letter grades, they'd be the F category. And uh, and just uh, just since today, and sort of, again, while you were on, uh-huh. is my troops are alerting me. We now have jumped up to 56 in that Fourth category, just people just buying time that are um, a, a, a letter grade D. Wow. And, you know, I want to go through sort of how you break down uh, that uh, the various categories in your list, but it's received a lot of attention, and I'm happy to say that it has. Uh, so before we get into those specifics of the breakdown, tell me how and why this project came about at Yale School of Management and what the effort now entails. Uh, as you note in your recent article at Fortune, both businesses and even folks in the defense world, apparently, are now using using this list as guidance. Yes, actually, uh, uh, we uh, just had a, a, a session with 70 CEOs. You're the first to know about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, just on Monday, uh, major CEOs across uh, all the, the face of American industry with uh, General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and, and he did emphasize that they are uh, working off of our list. We were humbled by that, but uh, we know that uh, people in Wall Street and the activist community and around are, are using it. You know, we just created it, Brad, because what happened is there were not, initially there were a little more than a dozen companies mm-hmm. had acted courageously, and we had nothing to do with them. It was surprising which ones they were, though. It was the major oil companies. Mm-hmm. They're not usually on the leading end of social change. <laughs> True. Uh, and the big uh, big tech, and they've gotten some black eyes lately, and mm-hmm. but they were on the front lines. And professional service firms, the lawyers, the accountants, consultants, they usually jump off a cliff rather than uh, get involved in conflict. And they were the first movers, so we started to really pay attention to this. But then you had all these kind of lookalikes because of clever PR spin Mm -hmm. that they were trying to create smoke screens around other companies, like a lot of the packaged goods, consumer products, firms, casual dining, that weren't doing much of anything but trying to make it look like they were. We thought, you know, somebody should create an independent authoritative list that separates out the the genuine article from Mm -hmm. the the fake ones, the wannabes, the pretenders. And we just created a simple two-part list. But wouldn't you know it, after we separate it out, it starts to stampede of people to get off that Hall of Shame list. Mm-hmm. But some of them did it with some of the most sleazy, slippery maneuvering. Oh, we're going we're gonna to cut back on some future long-term investments, uh, and mm-hmm. you legally have to represent that in your list. Well, where are those investments? You never, you never announced them. They were never listed. Nobody in the world knew about them. Mm-hmm. And, but, okay, so they make that stuff up, or maybe it's real, but we had to give credit to that. And, and other things like that. Oh, we're going we're gonna to shut down non-essential things. Well, it turns out, like you said, with Mondelez, Oreos are apparently still considered essential, and Cadbury <laughs> chocolates and things like that. And, you know, in my household, I guess they are, but I didn't think that life-sustaining in Russia. Well, yeah. And, and it's, so it's we thought we had to divide the list up. Yeah. So that's how we created those five categories, because we thought, uh, you know, we were, we were getting off too easily. And we have d- detailed explanations about them, but... The withdrawal, the really heroic ones, that's the clean break, mm-hmm. it's like a surgical strike. They're just out of there. Uh, and those were, like I mentioned, of all things, um, those big oil companies. You know, it's, uh, 
like fifteen billion dollars that BP left on the table, uh-huh. and, um, and uh, uh, almost maybe seven or eight billion that Exxon left, and Shell left uh, somewhere around four or five billion, and that, that, you know. I know you have some pretty wealthy listeners on your show, but that'd be a bad day for me to lose like you know five billion dollars or fifteen billion dollars. They really put their money where their mouth is. But weirdly, the brand management experts, the ad agencies, were just about the last to move. They were still digging in their heels. Lord knows why, staying in Russia. But even their clients started to leave. And then the second category, we saw there were a lot of the uh, uh, the franchised uh, fast food places and things, and mm-hmm. the fashion companies. Now, they're usually the first ones to move because they're so sensitive to social change and, you know, uh, uh, backlashes and mm-hmm. consumer boycotts. And, and yet they were, um, they, they were in a kind of a time warp. As you remember the whole perestroika period where the Soviet Union broke down and these Western branded goods like Levi Strauss, McDonald's, Coke, Pepsi, and then mm-hmm. later Starbucks, they were like symbols of liberation and Western values and freedom and things. So... Uh, these companies still thought, well, we're playing that bridge, paying that bridge, you know, a capitalist bridge to a, a harmonious one world. But sadly, that time's gone. You know, that's not where we are right now. And uh, so well, that was that next group. And, let, uh, let me let me ask you about those uh, those first two groups. Obviously, number one, withdrawal. Those folks who have uh, pulled out entirely. Uh, they get an A grade on your list. But the suspenders, that's the second list, the suspension group, uh, they only get a B grade. These are companies like 3M, Apple, Airbus, uh, Adidas, American Express, Google, Ford, Honda, Heineken, Harley-Davidson, and so forth. Uh, they get a B grade. Why isn't suspending business enough, uh, essentially keeping options open for later, if, for example, you know, Putin were to step down or something? Why, why is that uh, not as good as a full withdrawal? Because it allows uh, Putin and Putin supporters to say that this was just ceremonial and it's temporary. Mm. You don't need to worry. They're not really leaving. They'll be back. Mm. And so the message is just not as, as clear and as stark as it is when it's you know, complete disgust. And also it means that they're only suspending that they're doing something to maintain contact and, and goodwill there, like McDonald's or uh, mm. uh, paying its employees still at 60,000 people. They're not being paid to do anything. They're being paid to do nothing, as a matter of fact. But it still uh, is is damaging to the kind of the the idea of having a clean break. Do you, do you uh, think those sixty thousand people should not be paid? I think those sixty thousand people. But you're going to cut me off the show, and I'll never get back on again. No, no, no. 60,000 people ought to be out of work and in the streets, uh-huh. and that's what people don't understand on this. This is oh, there's the innocent Russians aren't responsible for what Putin's doing. Yes, they are. It's their complacency. Putin is in power not because he's popularly elected. You know, his mm-hmm. his uh, rivals uh, are put in prison or killed, and there's no dissenting opinion. Uh, so why is he there? He rules because of this iron fist of being a murderous tyrant. To take that on, you have to go in with warfare. Well, we don't want to. Do, if we don't want to do that, then one thing we can do to help those innocent Russians is to at least get them angry to be part of a civil disobedience, to be part of a shutdown of civil society. I mean, this is how Gandhi did it. This mm-hmm. is how we had government change in Romania with Nikolai Ceausescu or Eric, uh, what was his name, in, in uh, East Germany uh, uh, and the uh, in Poland, mm-hmm. and where we saw these, Eric Honecker in East Germany, mm-hmm. in Poland, we saw these changes happen. It, it was, you, we had bloodless revolutions in, in many countries. If you can basically break down a, a tyrant by showing he's not, 
a totalitarian successful leader. If you freeze up the economy, then you get people angry out on the streets and they bring down the government. But to keep them complacent and comfortable, that does no good whatsoever. That's, I mean, this is, you know, South Africa, they similarly had government change, a complete 200 companies pulled out voluntarily. And that was in, a, in, a, in accord with Ronald Reagan's, uh, and really is a, there were, it was a bipartisan uh, set of sanctions against South Africa from mm-hmm. the U.S., but the economic sanctions worked hand-in-hand with the, with the business blockades. And uh, the uh, Bishop Tutu, Desmond Tutu, told me in the early 90s that it was critical uh, that the business community had joined in. And what, what that did is it symbolically said that this was becoming a rogue nation. Right now, these Putin's uh, minions aren't getting the truth because the information is so censored. It's mm-hmm. bewildering in this electronic age that they are. Mm-hmm. But it's because they willingly don't want to know. It isn't just because they don't they can't get free press. Only 4% of Russians download a VPN so they could get onto a system and get the truth on the Internet. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so they don't care to know. And wouldn't an intelligent person start to wonder, you know, why is it I'm not allowed to read anything else other than what the government says, and when I question the government, I go to prison? Wouldn't you kind of wonder that maybe we're not getting the whole truth? But anyhow, when all their favorite brands shut down and they're out of work, and all these non-Russian companies say, you're a rogue nation, then they start to realize maybe what Putin's telling them, that they're trying to liberate Ukraine as these great heroes from the neo-Nazis controlling Ukraine, they'll realize that's not true. Let me run through a few more uh, categories here, and then I, I have some questions on, on some of those points you make. Uh, the, the third category, I guess the C grade is scaling back, reducing activities. What's, and, and it sort of begs the question, what's the point of scaling back at all if they are still operating? What kind of companies are we talking about there in that, in that third category? What, what kind of excuses uh, are they using here? Well, they, they could have some uh, certain kinds of shipments they'll cut back, certain lines that they'll come back on, whereas the, the, the group above that's suspending has suspended everything. They've suspended total operations. This group is partially operating, so um, they'll, they'll continue um, uh, in, in business lines that they think uh, are not related to anything that's uh, military or something which they, they'll argue that it's a, a humanitarian business of some sort, uh, maybe... Uh, some of the drug companies will say that we're going to suspend our aesthetic operations, our cosmetics and stuff, but we're going to continue our clinical trials that we're doing for, you know, vaccines or mm-hmm. cancer or, or uh, pediatric medicines or things of that nature. They'll argue, uh, I don't find it completely convincing, but this is what um, some companies are arguing to sort of continue their uh, the business that they consider are humanitarian vitals. So. Uh, uh, Pepsi argues the big dairy that they run there. That they shut down all the Pepsi Cola and Frito Lay stuff, but they do yeah. have a dairy. They have, the, and, um, and so that's 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 sort of the arguments that they are. There's a there's a place that has Eco Labs, which is um, uh, critical. Um, uh, diagnostic labs, and they think, well, we should get an exemption for that. Mm-hmm. Well, I I, I notice uh, that uh, the, there's some of those uh, folks in the buying time group. That's the uh, number four group, I guess. They get a uh, that's the D grade, holding off. Uh, they are holding off new investment and developments, postponing uh, uh, future planned investments and so forth. But they are continuing what you describe as substantive businesses. And I, I might be able to understand a pharmaceutical company like Bayer or Pfizer or 
uh, GlaxoSmithKline there on this part, but uh, Dunkin' Donuts, Ketchup Maker, Kraft, uh, Marriott Hotels, Kellogg, Mars Candy. Really? I mean, uh, in each of these cases, do they offer uh, excuses like like Pepsi? Oh, we're not going to sell our soda, but we're going to keep up our important dairy business because we don't want the Russian people to starve. Uh, yeah, that's what they're arguing. They're saying that it's providing some vital nutrition. It's very unconvincing. Uh, and I, I think that companies like Nestle and Mondelez, which has the Oreo cookies and Cadbury candy, and we know the, the Nestle's Quick and everything else that, that Nestle's provides, uh, the, the candies, mm-hmm. this is hardly essentials. But uh, my argument is even if they were essentials, they should be shut down. I don't even think the drug companies have a good excuse. I've talked to some of the leaders of some major pharma companies who admit that they don't have comfortable oversight anymore of what in the devil is happening in their labs. Mm. Now, this may sound overblown, but we look at this guy, what this guy's doing. This guy is the most dangerous human being um, in over a century, uh, most dangerous mm-hmm. human being in the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is a bloodthirsty guy who's got a, a finger on the button that, that claims he uh, he's considering you know nuclear war. This guy's really dangerous. So, uh, you know, they can't just play games with this, and they have to take it very seriously and not talk about um, uh, labs that could be retrofitted the way Hitler did. We know that IG Farben and Hearst AG and the old buyer, the old uh, uh, Merck, the old the pre-war Merck, that mm-hmm. they were, their labs were forced into doing uh, bio-warfare and, and uh, concentration camp gases and things like that. So we don't know what's happening there. I don't think we should be encouraging these. And, and, and as we put a spotlight on this two weeks ago, the major pharma company said, oh, we can't leave there. We have these critical clinical trials. Well, guess what? With the spotlight of public attention, all but one of them have moved, and they've, they've shut down their nice. trials in Russia. There isn't anything special about a Russian person to do a test on. You could do it on, an, on another person. I'm sure is just as healthy. It's the same biology. And I should note that, uh, by the way, even though you gave uh, credit to some of these oil companies, uh, some of the oil, some of these huge oil services, fossil fuel services companies, companies like Halliburton, Baker Hughes, Schlumberger, all, by the way, Houston-based companies, they are apparently digging in in uh, in Russia. That's the, uh, I guess, the fifth category here. Not only people who are staying or buying time, but who are actually expanding their businesses. What are the, uh, who who are some of your uh, favorite uh, companies well, to name and shame in that in that worst category of digging in? The ones you just named are really good, and they're <laughs> going to come screaming back at you and me. They're going to say, "Well, overnight we have um, suspended new investments, so therefore uh, you have to reclassify us," which we did. So those companies of uh, Baker Hughes, Halliburton, and Schlumberger you just named. Uh-huh got a modest upgrade just recently because, well, we were suspending new investments. But they're still processing, whatever that is, by the way, who Uh knows what that is, but they're still processing all their normal operations and processing all that that oil. That, that, you know, that's that's half of Russia's economy. By the way, the companies that we do have highlighted here that did pull out, these good guy companies, that is just about 25% of the GDP of Russia, just about 25% of Russia, aside from the sanctions. Mm. This just these companies, so that's really remarkable. It has big impact, and it's going to be it's going to make a difference. Take a hold here as people start asking questions as to why they are suffering such 
a, a change in lifestyle in Russia. And let me ask you about uh, one of my uh, favorite companies. That would be Coke Industries, the nation's second largest privately held conglomerate owned and run by the right-wing activist and massive dark money funder of the Republican Party, Charles Koch. They, uh, unless this changed since we've been uh, speaking, Jeffrey Sonnenfeld. No, no, uh, no you're, you're happy, you'd be happy to know they're still there. They're still <laughs> on the digging in the, the grade F uh, uh, portion of this list. Uh, they issued a statement in response to the attention that, and they have tons of companies, by the way. It's not just Coke Industries, but they all, you know, Georgia Pacific Paper, et cetera, et cetera. And, and they are choosing to continue doing business in Russia, apparently. Uh, they're uh, uh, their chief operating officer put out a statement saying, quote, the health, safety and well-being of all employees is our top priority, including our employees in Ukraine, Russia and thousands more across Europe at various Coke companies. We will not walk away from our employees there or hand over these manufacturing facilities to the Russian government so it can operate and benefit from them. Doing so would only put our employees there at greater risk and do more harm than good. Jeffrey Sonnenfeld, your response to the idea that they are doing this for their employees who would somehow be at risk if Coke shut down their operations there? You know, I, I feel like the proverbial mosquito in a nudist colony. I hardly know where to strike first, where to bite first on this one. <laughs> it, it's so ludicrous on every level. First of all, what makes them think that the people making great northern toilet tissues are somehow... If they, if they are out of work, are somehow going to be punished more than the McDonald's employees not working or the IBM mm-hmm. employees not working. Or the, you know, I mean, it's just ridiculous. It's just it's absurd. There, there are now millions and millions of employees that used to work for Western companies. There aren't enough football, soccer stadiums to round everybody up there. And, and there's certainly, they can't, I mean, it's impossible for them to, to somehow... Uh, unjustly punish people of this level for nothing they did even remotely wrong. There's just no, it, it wouldn't be a shred of legitimacy to the government that, that just would, would make the revolution happen instantly. It would be wonderful if they tried to, to round up 15 million people and then try to figure out what to do with them because they're not working for Western companies anymore. And that's ridiculous. It's just, it's absurd. It's impossible. And what makes them think that their companies' employees would be any more at risk than any other company's employees? We've been at this now a month. Nobody's employees have been rounded up and shot for not going to work to flip hamburgers. <laughs> Secondly, if they're going to expropriate resources, what difference does it make if it's Russia trying to run it or if it's uh, Schlumberger or Halliburton uh, or Baker Hughes trying to run it? The difference is you have the professional uh, oversight, which is why they went for these companies. They weren't Russia cre- Russian-created companies. If they had that talent, they wouldn't have had to import these uh, folks coming in from Texas to run the operation. So if they uh, if they think they can do it on their own, let them do it on their own. But it shouldn't be us doing it uh, with our expertise and and more importantly and and the branding. You know that these um, it's really important that it not be the reassurance to in, investors and to partners, to customers, and all that it is the Western brand that brings some degree of expertise and uh, international uh, knowledge systems that are shared. So. I mean that's sort of the the argument why you you don't want want them to do it. It's, and if you really care about your employees' well-being too, well then why not uh, bring this economy to a standstill so they don't wind up being shot with our bullets or bombed by our planes? Because uh, there isn't anybody anybody that you would call on the phone right now in military and diplomacy wouldn't say we aren't perilously close to World War Three. 
this is a, a country that's talking about playing games with nuclear warfare and biochemicals. Uh, we're right now, this is a last-ditched effort. So to make your employees a little bit uncomfortable for a little while, maybe it's worth it to keep them alive. Well, I actually uh, don't think they give a damn about their employees having had some experience with Coke Industries over the year. I think the over the years, I think the, the part of that statement from their uh, COO, Dave Robertson, uh, when he says, we will not walk away from our employees there or hand over these manufacturing facilities to the Russian government so it can operate and benefit from them. I think that might be uh, at the heart of their concerns. Yeah, that's more like it. You're so, <laughs> yeah. so true. That's, that's more the heart of it, yep. uh, if there is a heart there, because you're suggesting actually <laughs> there's no heart there, but you're right. And, and, and what would this cost them anyway? Nothing compared to what the oil companies in the good conscience surrendered. Yeah. And if they were to walk away from all these, we're not looking at $50 billion of hard assets they're walking away from like the oil companies did. You you, uh, you and Stephen, uh, and I, I botched his name earlier. Stephen Tian. Tian. Stephen Tian. He'd be okay. happy you got the recognition, though. There yeah. we go. Uh, you, Yeah, you and, and uh, Stephen Tian uh, at Fortune, you noted that you have been uh, told that our list of companies leaving and staying in Russia did provide courageous CEOs with the confidence to execute bold pronouncements, which I find interesting. Is that because until they saw others taking these steps that they were afraid to do so themselves, or is it because they were shamed when they showed up in the wrong category on uh, on your list? You know, I'm so glad I wrote that article uh, uh, before you did, because you figured it out exactly right. It's both of those, and you expressed <laughs> it really well, is that there's a, there's a first, first movers who had the courage already in them, or the companies, or the boards. The second group wanted to do it, but they wanted to do what, of course, the people in the corporate world call benchmarking. They wanted that peer, peer affirmation that they're not alone. Uh, they don't want to walk out on a, on a thin branch. Mm-hmm. Now they saw others are all, and they're in together, so that critical mass that gave them the confidence. But, yeah, then there's that third group that moved because they were shamed, because of either uh, being outed, uh, that they were slippery, sleazy, mm-hmm. smoke screens of, of PR, uh, the miscasting material didn't work, and they've been outed, so investors or customers, or, you know, in a lot of cases, it's internal employees. Whether or not you buy into a lot of this Gen Z stuff, where these kids buy, where they shop, mm-hmm. where they invest, and where they want to work is very much influenced by what the social and public images of the company mm-hmm. and that seems to be holding. So we saw an awful lot of people in the tech community young professionals, people in the, uh, in, the, in the law firms and the accounting firms and things like that, consultants saying, you know, we, we don't need to hang around here. So the, and some of this, of course, is if we ever get to this post-pandemic stage, this sense of, uh, of independence that we see that people have with the sort of the great resign is that they're a lot more mobile and more mo- vocal than they used to be. So the internal voices mattered a lot. But the investors did. When we posted our results... On CNBC, the first day we had the article published, uh-huh. the companies that were in that digging in category, the markets were down that day, 3% or 5%, depending which index you're looking at. But these companies were down anywhere from 12 to 35%. Yeah. So, and, and it was across sectors. Uh, yeah, no, I know this makes a difference. And, uh, you know, I think this is really important, this list. I'm wondering, we have heard, uh, you know, sort of over the past year or so, as uh, states in this country have begun to change their laws to restrict voting, to restrict democracy in our own country, Jeffrey Sonnenfeld. We have seen companies come out and make claims that, uh, you know, Coca-Cola in, in, in Georgia and uh, some other companies in Texas and so forth, that they object 
objected to this policy or that policy, but they continued to do business with those states anyway. I think your list does make a difference. Is this something that could be used in our own country to fight for our own democracy here in such a way that uh, some of these companies could or should be named or shamed? I think they should. Has that come up at at, uh, the Yale School of uh, Management? Well, just between us, I am mm-hmm. a little disappointed to see some of the banks and technology companies moving into Florida and Texas mm-hmm. with the voter restriction laws that have gone in there. And, you know, it's not just the voting access, as you know, and it's a different show for us to talk about this, but I know you've already covered it. But it's the, how the ballots are counted after mm-hmm. people have voted, too, that they have such uh, partisan overrides to control whose ballots get invalidated. Sure. Right. Uh, that's a great problem. And a lot of companies didn't realize that initially. But as the Georgia law went through, on one day's notice, I called and got 90 major CEOs out, and and then hundreds signed a petition. And before that, we wound up getting a very large number of uh, of companies to sign, uh, uh, make a pledge that they would not support the uh, sedition supporting um, they made that, they made those pledges but then they you know oh we're going to pause we're going to re uh, you know reexamine you know our support it, and then they did it anyway them, some reneged some definitely reneged most stood by it they're only supposed to be temporary so there's not a, a single there're only of the 127 objectors in congress 97 of them were incumbents so they if you take a look at what kind of money they raised from the corporate world mm-hmm. The last time, which is 2019 versus this past year, is that every single one of them is down. Every single one of them, not a single one has a dollar more, despite whatever you read in anybody's complaints about mm-hmm. corporate America, is that the PACs have reduced their funding, especially to these seditionist uh, GOP f- uh, figures, so that somebody like the uh, 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 Speaker of the House, uh, he's uh, down about 60%. Somebody like uh, Scalise is down like 75%. Somebody like Mo Brooks or... Or, or Senator Hawley or mm-hmm. Senator Cruz, they're down 97% from corporate support. Not a single one of them is up by a penny. They're not hurting for money, though. They're getting it from very wealthy individuals. Well, they are getting it, and, and by the way, the Speaker of the House is not yet Kevin McCarthy. I think that's who you're referring to there. Former Speaker uh, of the I mean, yeah, yeah. Uh, oh my gosh. Party, uh, yeah, oh yeah. my gosh, yeah. That's May, so, maybe future uh, Speaker yeah. of the House. But no, but, yeah. they're, but they're still, but Leader these companies, Thank these, you. Yeah. these companies are still, uh, you know, giving money, giving money to the Republican Party, to the, you know, to the PAC, the leadership PACs, which then distribute it to the, to the uh, campaigns. I mean, you know, when it comes to attacks on democracy in our own country, whether it's the January 6th insurrection. I, what I want to know is, yeah. when we saw social change happen in the 1960s, mm-hmm. and even in the 1970s, mm-hmm. we had clergy across faith holding hands, marching in protest. We had college campuses that were uh, ablaze with energy. We had trade union leaders, and we had professional associations. We had all kinds of people out there. Where are they all now? They're as complacent as the Russians want to, want their, to get their jobs paid and to work in McDonald's for doing nothing. Is The complacency is the problem here. The corporate America has become uh, very much engaged. But the trouble is, with all these advocates saying they want shareholder um, you know, democracy and they want uh, stake, stakeholder governance, where are they all? You, you well, tell I, me any I, pension funds that are out there making the case you are. 
I went before the Michael Milken conference, some of the biggest pension funds in the country, said, let's talk about voting rights. Oh, no, no, no. We'd rather just talk about climate change, because all they want to talk about is the easy stuff. Uh, so you have uh, this sophistry where they debate about zero carbon, carbon neutral, or carbon negative, and feel good for the day. And meanwhile, we lose our democracy. They don't care. They don't want to get involved in the contract. Where are the pension funds? Where are the trade unions? Where's the clergy? Well, uh, you know what? I And I hear you, and I, I'll tell you uh, where they are. I think, I suspect a lot of people have... Uh, it's very easy to ignore all of those people. It is much harder to ignore Wall Street, which is why I think what you're doing is so important and calling out these companies and naming and shaming them, because we've learned over these, I don't know how many decades, that the only thing that seems to matter in this country is is capitalism. You can have all of the uh, the, the, the priests and uh, nuns you want out there, uh, you know, protesting and, and being arrested, but nothing seems well, to change until it's the companies that you're highlighted being called out. It wasn't the companies who stomped the war. It wasn't the companies who brought about all the environmental legislation that, that we had uh, two decades ago. It was it was all those groups and the, the civil rights legislation we had that came uh, because all those groups were engaged and mm-hmm. now they're passive. Yeah. In fact, even even in the voting rights front we have, there guess how many voting rights groups we have? We have 300 of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and that's all they do is supposedly voting rights. They spend more time fighting each other than they fight for the cause. <laughs> they're, they're going to the same foundations, the same CEOs, trying to hit them up for the same petitions, mm-hmm. saying, don't listen to them, listen to us. They get different messages as to which legislation to push. So the corporate community gets confused by the voting rights people. Meanwhile, half of these groups were just created in the last eight, ten months, and they don't join anybody else's group. Why not just fortify somebody else's? They create these causes around themselves. And this is what happens on too many issues. You have these profiteers come along, yeah. and that's what... That's what we're looking at in some of these uh, Klingon corporations that are trying to pretend they're doing something in Russia they weren't. You have these opportunists and profiteers on any, any mass movement, any social change. And it, you know, it happens in this Ukraine-Russia battle, and it happens in voting rights, and it happens in climate change. Uh-huh cancer fronts. There's just a lot of pretenders that get in there. No, I I hear you. I hear you. And that's a fight we're going to have to have another day. Uh, I, I don't think you're wrong. Uh, I just think that, you know, naming and shaming these companies obviously makes a difference. Jeffrey Sonnenfeld, I got to get out. I'm running way late, but I really oh, enjoy it. I no, really no, no. enjoyed it, obviously. I, I, Thanks. I, I really enjoy talking to you as well. Hopefully we can find an excuse to do it again in the not-too-distant future. Jeffrey Sonnenfeld is the uh, Senior Associate Dean and the Lester Crown Professor of Math management practice at the Yale School of Management. Uh, we will link, of course, to your list of all of these uh, very bad and some very good companies, I guess. At uh, it's, uh, But you can find it at the School of Management. That's som.yale.edu. And you can find uh, Jeff Sonnenfeld on the Twitters at Jeff Sonnenfeld. Really appreciate your time with us today, Jeffrey. Hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you. I'm so honored. Thanks again. Bye-bye. You bet. Thank you. Okay, he's a live wire. <laughs> he is. That uh, was very lively. Yeah, and I'm. I'm. I would love to talk to him for another twenty or thirty minutes, yeah. but I can't. I got to get out. Yes. So uh, we will post a link to his list, his full list, at bradblog.com when we post today's show. In case you want to know who to not do business with, or yes, who to do business with. Anyway, gotta go. Thank you very much, Desi Doy, and our producer. Thanks to everyone for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, download it for free anytime at bradblog.com. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. Otherwise, you will find me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Brad Blog. 
We'll see you there until we see you here, hopefully tomorrow. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.